1 Corinthians 15.35. Let's pray before we get into the word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of Jesus resurrecting from the dead. We thank you for the implications of that. And there, there is so much benefit to the Christian because of the resurrection of Jesus. And we've been learning that. And, and so, Lord, would you just press those wonderful truths into our life and our heart. Thank you for the hope that is found in Jesus and, uh, and Lord, as we study more today on this wonderful subject, we pray that you would just um, get us excited about the truth of your word and that you are legit, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would um, give hope to those that have no hope today, that there's power in the resurrection. And uh, we pray all this in the awesome name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. There seems to be a craze with zombies these days. Pop culture is having its own zombie apocalypse. Zombie films and games are on fire. Of course, Michael Jackson seemed to strike the match with Thriller back in the 80s. But now we have video games like Call of Duty that have a, have a special mission where you're John F. Kennedy blowing away zombies in the White House. We have TV shows such as The Walking Dead and Brad Pitt starring in World War Z. You can go to Borders or Amazon and get the book The Zombies Survival Guide. The same author is the webmaster of an informative website called Zombie Research Society, which gives helpful insights into zombie history, science, and how to survive that zombie apocalypse. And yes, I went to the website this morning and... <laughs> Had to spend a special time in prayer before I got up here. If you didn't know any better, you'd think that followers of God have had their own zombie uh, apocalypse. No, their own zombie craze. Over the last 6,000 years of Christian history, we have had an obsession with the living dead. Or rather, the resurrected dead. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is something that is peculiar to Christianity. In fact, our oldest book in our Bible, the book of Job, has a historical account of a man who is going through a tragic place of suffering, and yet he utters the words, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job, the oldest book of the Bible, even though my skin is destroyed, with that skin I will see God. With my eyes I will behold him. The resurrection of the dead. Now remember the place of the resurrection in Paul's own life. Remember, his former name was Saul of Tarsus. Now, here's a guy who is as hostile to Christians as you can get. You might compare Saul to Adolf Hitler and his war against the Jews, or Osama bin Laden and his hatred for Israel in the United States. Saul was ardently against all things Jesus. 
call yourself a Christian, Saul would hunt you down with foaming mouth, clenched jaw, and murderous threats, the book of Acts tells us. Claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus, or do you buy into the news that he is alive? Saul of Tarsus would bust into your house and drag you, your wife, and your children off to Jerusalem's prisons in chains to have you severely punished or perhaps even put to death. And yet one day, while Saul of Tarsus was on official business to collect more prisoners from Damascus, he seemed to have a real-life changing experience where he claims to have encountered a risen Jesus, an alive Jesus, a no longer dead, flesh and bones, glorified, bona fide Jesus. And this encounter immediately changes his life and all of his allegiances. He was now a Christian, part of the way, part of the very tribe that he had once set his face to annihilate. He didn't just stop killing Christians. He became perhaps the most zealous agent of the gospel the world has ever known. And because he had seen Jesus alive, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and Christians from the dead was a regular part of his message. In fact, at one point, he made his travels all the way to Athens, Greece, where he preached to philosophers up on a very popular place called Mars Hill. He preached, and he eventually mentioned the resurrection from the dead. It says, when these philosophers heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. When Paul stood on Mars Hill in the midst of this learned assembly at the Areopagus, he spoke to them about the resurrection of the body. Now, if he had just spoke of the immortality of the soul, they would not have mocked him. They wouldn't have laughed. They would have respected him. For this is one of what's called the sublime truths that their own Grecian wise men taught. But when he went on to assert, that the flesh and blood that was laid in the tomb would yet rise again, that bones that had become the dwelling place for worms, that flesh that had corrupted and decayed would actually start fresh into new life, the body as well as the soul would live, these people scoffed at him. Now, Paul dedicates one of the longest chapters in the whole book of 1 Corinthians to this dialogue concerning the resurrection. And it's here in our sixth study through 1 Corinthians 15 that we get to verse 35 where Paul says, But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? This is a skeptic asking, oh really, the resurrection from the dead? What, do they come busting up out of the earth like zombies? And what if they were cremated? Does a bunch of dust just come up and swoop around into the air, coming together in a big old dust pile? What if the body, Paul, was burned in a field, decomposed, worms came, ate the remaining ashes, creating fertile soil, which is nutrients, then absorbed into the plants, eaten by the cow, eliminated his waste, and then processed the process repeated for at least a couple thousand years. What then of that body? What of the body that's dumped into the sea and makes its abode among the dead there? Eaten by a shark or a crab or a shellfish or something like that. Resurrection from the dead. Ezekiel answers this question. 
In chapter 37, verse 3, when the Lord shows Ezekiel a valley of nothing but dry bones, the Lord says, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Can this cremated body or can this worm feces live? O Lord, you know. Jesus says that it's easier for a rich, uh, excuse me, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciple says, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, this isn't impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees were these religious Jewish leaders who did not believe in the resurrection from the dead or in angels or in the afterlife. They tried to trick Jesus by saying, suppose a woman is married to a man and he dies. So she marries the next husband and he dies and the next husband and he dies. And seven times this happened. Perhaps you remember the old movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Here we have seven brothers for one bride. All right. And they tried to trick Jesus up with this. Making fun of the resurrection. Oh, really? And if this is the case, Jesus, what about, mm? And Jesus says to them, are you not, you are mistaken because you do not know the scriptures, first of all, nor the power of God. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. So one of the greatest issues that people have of an afterlife or of the resurrection from the dead is how in the world can God get an ash heap, or a bunch of bones to come to life into some glorious body like that could ever happen. Well, go back to the very first book, uh, the very first book in the Bible, to the very first verse in the verse, first book of the Bible, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's been said, if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you can believe any of the other mysteries or hard passages in the Bible. If God can create everything that we see and know in six days with the word of his mouth, then certainly he can resurrect the dead. And so verse 36 goes on to say, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. That seems a little harsh by the Apostle Paul. You bunch of idiots. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this is a foolish question. All right, this is a question that you haven't thought through. If you would have known the Lord God that you're speaking of, then this would not be a problem, this resurrection of the bodies in various states of decay. It's a foolish thing to deny the resurrection simply because you don't understand the process of the resurrection. And in this process, Paul says, what you sow, and by the way, it's not speaking of sewing machine sewing. Speaking of farming, sowing, sowing the seeds. And what you cast out seed-wise is not made alive unless it first dies. And verse 37 says, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that will be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. And so Paul uses an illustration from nature for us that show that God has given us a type of, of the resurrection so that our mind can comprehend it. I like what Spurgeon says. God preaches to us in acts and deeds. If we would but perceive it, creation and providence are two continual sermons streaming from the mouth of God. 
This very month of April, Spurgeon says, and I liked it because we're going into the month of April. He says, if it's not the very entrance into spring, certainly it introduces us to the fullness of spring. This very month, bearing in its name the title of the opening month, speaks to us of the resurrection. As we have walked through our gardens and fields and woods, we've seen the flower buds ready to burst upon the trees and the fruit blossoms hastening to unfold themselves. We have seen the buried flowers upstarting from the sod, and they've spoken to us with a sweet, sweet voice, with the words, Thou too shall rise again. Thou too shalt be buried in the earth like seeds that are lost in winter. But you will rise again, and you will live and blossom in eternal spring. Think that this spring. Let that be upon your mind as you see the blossoming tree, as you plant the seeds upon the ground. Because it's in this illustration of nature that Paul suggests the real identity of the resurrected body. The new body will be glorified from the seed, from our code and our blueprint in this old current body. This illustration of the seed is something that everyone is really familiar with. But like often is the case, whenever we're familiar with something, we forget how majestic it is and how marvelous it is. It was that case with the Nazarenes when Jesus came into their town. They knew everything about Jesus, and it was boring to them. All right, Don't let your familiarity cause you to to, to lack the heart that the illustration in nature would bring to us. Alistair Begg says that the resurrection is written into the fabric of our daily existence. Just open your eyes and you see the hope that we have. The seed itself dies with the exception of one little particle inside that's almost too small to be perceived. And that real life is contained in that particle. No one argues that when you plant the seed in the ground, whatever grows up and blossoms and bears fruit is from that seed. It's the same case with our mortal bodies. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies, 36 told us. Verse 38 says, But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body kind of neat to see God's sovereignty over the seed life and the germination process. It's a miracle, a miraculous act that God has this seed die, and yet somehow there's like energy inside and there's still life, and then it grows again. So too, it's a miraculous act of God that our body would die and resurrect to its new body. So God can and will give to the Christian at their resurrection an appropriate body as it pleases him, one that's suitable to their new glorified state, a body that's peculiar to that individual and is substantially the same body that was sown. Though the body be different, they will be precisely the same. The identity shall be preserved. In order to affirm this, the ancient Christian church had a creed that they would declare, and they would regularly declare, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. When was the last time you had that be a creed in your life? Well, then certain false teachers came in and began speaking that there would be no resurrection from the dead. So in Latin, they tagged something onto the end of this creed where they said, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And then they said, 
of this very flesh and blood. I believe in the resurrection from the dead of this very flesh and blood. The very flesh and blood that was buried. The very eyes that were closed at death. The very hand that stiffens by the corpse. These members shall live again and yet be transformed to something new and much more glorious. And so the skeptic would ask, how in the world can these decayed bodies raise up and be whole? Now, I'm no scientist. In fact, it's a little awkward having a biology teacher sit right here, advanced biology. So we're going to have a little forum afterwards where he can correct everything that I've said. But over a hundred years ago, men knew that our bodies were constantly changing, cells were dying, other cells were being formed, and that over a process of ten years, you actually weren't the same person that you were ten years ago. And so if you haven't seen a friend for a while, you're like, Chris, my buddy! And he's like, Rory! And you're like, we know each other, you're Chris, I'm Rory, but this isn't the same, alright? Those things complete with buck tooth and giant Adam's apple, those are dead, they're gone. This is new. New Rory here, okay? No, it's the same Rory, same buck teeth, same Adam's apple, okay? I get a glorified Adam's apple in heaven, and I'm really excited for it. It's going to be able to shoot laser beams and do all these crazy things. But there's a transforming that takes place, and God is able to do it. In church history, there was a man named Peter, and he's known today as Peter the Martyr. He was a reformed hero, a hero in the Reformation, who stood up for the word of God and against many of the lies uh, and, and waverings of Catholicism. And at that time, there was a big war between the Catholics and the reformed people, and so uh, a lot of persecution against the Protestant Reformation. And so when Peter died, they sought after his body that they could desecrate it, all right? And they would do that often to, to the dead reformers. And so when they couldn't find Peter's body, they waited for his wife to die, and then they took her body and buried it on a dunghill in order to desecrate it. And then over a period of time, uh, as, as Queen Mary left and the Victorian age came in, uh, they were able to, Christians would come and they would take the uh, body of Peter's wife and they came and they cremated it and they took the ashes and they mixed the ashes with a Roman Catholic hero saint so that they, when, if the Roman Catholics ever came into power again, they wouldn't be able to de desecrate this body because they would be desecrating one of their own saints. Tricky. So, in the resurrection of the dead, when this woman slash saint comes up from the dead in this special hybrid state, half saint, half woman, you know, you know yeah, God, what are you going to do with that one? It's like God knows the DNA of the individual and how incredible with science we can clone something, we can make something from that something. We've got Jurassic Park where a guy makes a whole world of dinosaurs out of a little mosquito that's inside of a... You see, it's not real, but it's real. Talk to the scientists about it. Okay? God is able. Is, is God able to make up a, an individual backup out of the ash from half Roman Catholic, half woman ash? Lord, you know. In the beginning, God created. And in the resurrection, God will transform. Verse 39 tells us, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh is of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. 
There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies and extraterrestrial bodies. No, that's not true. I added that. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So there's lots of different created bodies. God's able to make that. There's celestial body, which are heavenly, angelic, and seraphim and cherubim type bodies. And there's terrestrial, earthly bodies. Verse 41 says there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one glory differs from another star in glory. And so as you look at the different stars and planets, you're just amazed that this one's beautiful and it's got this glory about it. And then there's this one. It's so cool too. It's got rings around it. And this one, we had orbits and this and that different glorious things about them. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Verse 42 says the body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Daniel tells us that those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many people to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So in our transformed state in all of eternity, there's going to be different glories. And one thing we know is those individuals who were constantly evangelical and leading people to repentance and away from hell and towards Christ, uh, these are people that will uh, shine, have a special shine, a special glory about them. And those that are righteous, Matthew 13, 43 says, those individuals are going to shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And in the midst of it all, before it, the body is sown in corruption, but it's raised in incorruption. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Now, You may remember that I'm a guy that loves to compare or contrast things, all right? For some reason, sixth grade English class is like, compare and contrast the difference between a cat and a dog. They both have fur and sharp teeth, uh, but, you know, one likes to swim and one doesn't. You know, loved those assignments, okay? So, lo and behold, the Bible has all kinds of contrasts. And last week we did that. We contrasted the first man, Adam, from Adam and Eve, and the second man, Jesus, and how they, ha- they each had special things flow from their one action. Well, we're going to get to that later on today, once again. But a quick contrast here is that as our old body finds its way to the grave, it, it has all of these words associated that we first read. Corruption and dishonor and weakness. These things describe the death of our flesh. That is weakness and being ill and having pain and oozing sores and bleeding misery moving on toward decay. Doesn't sound good, huh? On the other hand, this new glorified body is marked by incorruption and glory and power, which can be translated unending supernatural might. There's Jewish writing that speaks of the resurrected bodies being able to like pluck up islands out of the sea and cast them. And I'm not saying that that's like legit or anything, but there's just this hope of what the resurrection is going to be like. There's going to be this might and this power. Now, it's interesting that one of the, the, the phrases that shows just the, the corruption of our death, and you remember that the psalmist David wrote, and I think it's Psalm 16, or maybe it's Psalm 110, I'm just blanking right now. But he writes that you shall, no long, you shall not let your Holy One see corruption. 
And that's a, that's a prophecy of Jesus rising from the dead. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, it's not David that didn't see corruption because his body rotted and is in Jerusalem with us to this day. You can go see his tomb. His bones are inside of the sarcophagus. It's speaking of Jesus who would be buried and we can go over north of the city to this tomb and see that Jesus isn't there. You don't smell an aroma because his body hasn't seen corruption. But the word dishonor isn't the same as that corruption. It's interesting. The word dishonor means a loss of rights of citizenship. So when we go to the grave, we lose our rights of citizenship to this world. Where Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Remember last week we saw that because Jesus rose from the dead, it means that he is going to have a kingdom one day that just puts every other kingdom underneath his feet. It means total dominance. Because he resurrected, he's going to have a kingdom. If he never rose from the dead, totally anticlimactic ending to the Messiah's life. No kingdom to come. But he did rise from the dead, thus there's a kingdom. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that after he rules and reigns and put all things under his feet, there will be such glory about him. He will then, in voluntary submission as the second person of the Godhead, lay down all of this glory at the feet of the Father that God may be all in all. It's in our text. I'm not making this stuff up. Okay? When that happens... It's going to be the most glorious time that the universe has ever known. And it's that same power that God is using to conform our lowly bodies into his glorious type body. Because of the resurrection, incorruption triumphs over corruption. Glory triumphs over dishonor. Power triumphs over weakness. Spiritual things triumph over the natural things. And praise God, because these natural things hurt. These natural things are sad. These natural things are hard. These natural things bring agony, and they are excruciating, and we can't wait. We groan, the Bible says. We groan for that day when he will put all things under himself. I mean, some of you guys have gone through so much pain and so much hard stuff. First service, I was trying to show that my biggest pain in my body are canker sores I get every now and then. Had to have the elders pray for me two weeks ago that I'd be able to preach because my canker sore hurt so bad. <laughs> All right. I've got another one today. And in the back of my mind, I've just got this like, boo -boo. I got like a pulse in my lip right now. I don't know how that happens, right? Some of you have like died and come back to life. You've been in that much pain. I'm sorry. I wish I had better examples for you. But even me in my piddly little pain, I'm so excited that there will be a day when there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. He's going to wipe every tear away from our eye. This is the good news of the gospel. And the righteous individual who's been made that way in Christ Jesus will go to the grave all worn out 
all weary. They will go with furrowed brow, Spurgeon says, and hollowed cheek and wrinkled skin. They shall wake up in beauty and in glory. We're going to read in a little bit. Second Corinthians speaks of this being a tent. All right, but we're looking forward to a building that's being made for us. This body is like sleeping in a little one-man A-frame out there in the rain and the snow. But we're going to get a mansion with like voice command and stuff, you know. That's what the difference is going to be. I remember 17 years old, my grandma passed away. And we were at the memorial. We had her cremated and had the little urn there. And we had to go in the back room of this, um, you lived in one, Gish, what's it called? Funeral home. home. (laughs) There you go. Went back to get a a couple chairs. And there's an open casket, all right? Have you ever seen a dead body? There's an open casket. And you're 17 years old, you're like, you know? Spurgeon says, furrow-browed and sunken cheek, and that's exactly, it's like, oh, you know, amazing. So went back out, getting ready to do a little songs at the funeral, and my cousin hadn't been back there yet. And I said, hey, Randy, could you go back there and get a chair for us? He goes back there comes out white like he'd seen a a ghost you know he thought it was grandma so it wasn't very funny and he's still mad about it 13 years goes by and he's still mad at it but this tent this furrowed brow this sunk cheek it will rise again in beauty and in glory and in might and in power Now, the popular illustration, you've all been waiting for me to use it, all preachers use it, it must be used again, is a crawling caterpillar. All right? Crawling caterpillar, very interesting, kind of cute, kind of pretty, lots of legs, crawls up a tree, makes itself a little cocoon, a sleeping bag. A matter of a week or so goes by, and this thing comes out of a catalyst or chrysalis, something like that. You don't know? You don't know. All right? comes out does it come out like a big buff caterpillar what does it come out like a butterfly or something right beautiful colors where it once like had to walk along the ground really slow and you watch it make its way across the patio and then your little kid rides his scooter over it you know and oh now now it hops out of its cocoon and it soars off all right see the difference corruption and slow mobility and you know and then beauty and speed and glory verse 44 says when we die we are sown a natural body but raised a spiritual body there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body you've heard me say that this body is what will be resurrected and oftentimes i slap my cheeks and pinch my skin And it's true, but it'll be different. It's the body, but it's in a new form. It's raised up from the dead. Verse 50 tells us that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what that means is our body as it is cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first one of us that rose from the dead or will rise from the dead. He's been called the prototype of of the resurrection. He's the best example that we have of what a resurrected body will be like. And in 1 John chapter 3, John tells us, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
So interesting that in John, First John, John's like, we don't really know what we're going to be like, and you know, there's this, and but, but man, when we see him, we'll know what we'll be like. And then he writes the book of Revelation where he sees Jesus. Now I'm not saying we're going to like have the white hair and the fiery eyes and all that, but there's going to be that a, a new transformed body like Jesus has. So let's examine Jesus's body after he rose from the dead. We'll have a prototype for our own bodies if we're in Christ. In chapter 28 of Matthew, when the women go to the tomb, the angel tells them, he is not here for he is risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go twick, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. So in a resurrected body, it's not that Jesus, like his spirit rose from the dead. So when they went to the tomb, it's like, well, his body's here. But trust me, his spirit rose. It's, it's out there somewhere. No, the body was gone. He's not here. Come see where he lay. He's not there anymore. All right? Was here. (laughs) Now you see him. Now you don't. But he's waiting for you in Galilee. Go see him. The Gospels each give this account. Later on in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, and later on in the chapter, we see that the disciples are hiding in a room. They've got the doors and windows locked. They're talking about these things. And Jesus himself all of a sudden stood in the midst of them. And said to them, peace to you. Look, I don't care what you say. If you just appear in the middle of a bunch of people, <laughs> you're going to scare them. But he said, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they'd seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do these doubts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. So apparently our resurrected body, it's not going to be in the grave anymore, just as Jesus's wasn't in the grave anymore. It's something that can walk through walls and suddenly appear places. It's a body that has flesh and has bones and can be touched and handled and would not mind eating something. (laughs) Broiled fish, a little honeycomb. I'll tell you, it sounds like heaven to me, right? I mean, we love to eat here at Calvary Chapel. He took it and he ate in their presence. Fun fact, earlier on in Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, Jesus is speaking with the two on the road to Emmaus, but it says he changed his appearance so they didn't recognize him. Perhaps our resurrected bodies will be able to change appearances, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the purpose of that would be. Fun pranks. But Jesus is the prototype. Verse 45, going back to our big main text here. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So remember from last week, the distinction between the two Adams. From Romans chapter 5, through one man, one Adam's one act, sin came into the world, and death, and judgment, and condemnation, and penalty. But through another man called the second Adam, named Jesus, one man's act A gift of grace and forgiveness and justification and life came. You guys remember that? Hopefully you can preach that better than I can by now, all right? Because this is like, we keep going over it in this chapter. 
I read something interesting in, in a book called Name Above All Names. It's a book written by Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson, posted on, on Facebook, so pardon if it's repetition. But listen to this. The tree in the garden tested Adam's obedience, but it also provided a context in which he could grow in his relationship to God. Do you ever think about that? Uh, you know, well, why was the tree there? If he knew that, if God knew, you know, listen, it provided a context for him to grow in his relationship to God. For God was really saying to Adam, obey me in this to show that you trust me and love me. By doing so, you will grow in your relationship with me. Jesus was also brought to a tree. He too faced temptation. The second man was brought to Calvary's tree. He faced reversed mirror image of the first man's temptation. There was nothing in the first tree that led Adam instinctively to resist the temptation to eat its del- uh, his delicious looking fruit. So there was nothing in the second tree that attracted Jesus to eat its repulsive fruit of God-forsakenness. It was an accursed tree. Jesus had to not want to eat the fruit of the tree with his whole being and yet be willing to eat it. It's a whole other kind of obedience. And so Jesus is the second Adam And Adam from Adam and Eve is our first Adam compared again. In Genesis chapter 2, it says that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And I love this, don't you? Breathed into his nostrils. It's the first mention of CPR in the Bible. And the breath of life went in and man became a living being. So Adam was a living being, which is good. But Jesus is a life-giving Spirit. Do you see the difference? I'm alive. I give life. 46 tells us, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord of heaven. So Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. Jesus wasn't created. He's eternal. And he's the ruler of heaven. John 3.31, Jesus says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Guys, we have the deity of Jesus shown to us. Jesus is God. He is glorified and worshipped as God. Verse 48 says, As was the man of dust, so are also all those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Remember the dusty man? He was made out of dust. He was going to return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return, Genesis chapter 3 tells us. And so that comparing and contrasting, verse 49, as we born the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be 
changed. I love this, that in all of human history, 6,000 years or so, that man has existed on the earth, there will be a moment in history where a group of people will never die. Is that amazing? There will be a group of people who will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. In that moment, they will be transformed into their glorious body. They'll never know death. I really hope that I'm in that group. I would love that. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that were you? In the same sense, there's a group of people that are alive during that time, out of 6,000 years of human history, and they exist on the earth during that moment where people won't die, and yet they won't go. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that one of the most sad things? That's worse than like a train of rescue leaving the Holocaust. And like people are getting on and we're rescued from the Holocaust. And then like people that are like, yeah, have a good one. And staying in the Holocaust. It's worse than that. People staying on the planet for uh, perhaps the seven year period of God pouring out his wrath on planet Earth. But we know this catching away of this group of people, it will be in a moment. So what? It's really interesting, actually. The word moment is the Greek word atomos, kind of like atom, right? Atom. And it's known as the smallest measurable unit in all of creation, whether you're discussing weight, mass, length, or time. It's the smallest measurement, which is 10 to the 43rd power, point, you know, it's tiny, that's all I'm getting at, that's all I know. Talk to the science guy, okay? Johnny Nye, right here, okay? So, okay, so in a moment, in 10 to the 43rd power quickness, all right, then he puts it to Rory, um, the twinkling of an eye. Okay, now I get you, all right, now I know how quick it's going to be. It's been estimated that the human eye twinkles 10 times between consecutive blinks. Now, the eye does three things. The wink, the blink, and the twink. (laughs) Joe, I'm not making this up. A twinkle is a reflected particle of light seen in the eye and thusly travels at the speed of light 983,571,056 feet per second. This equates to an inestimate, an infinitely small fraction of a second. So it would be fair to say it occurs in about a billionth of a second. And about the time it takes to blink the eye, if you see someone's eye twinkle, light must travel through the front of their eye, reflect off their retina, and then exit their eye. So in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now what is this last trumpet? Those who believe that Jesus gathers his people after the seven-year period, or perhaps in the middle of the seven-year period of the tribulation, argue that this is the last trumpet judgment cited in Revelation 11:15 through 19. But this may not be the case. The last trumpet may not refer to the last trumpet of the seven-trumpet judgments, but may refer to the last trumpet believers here on earth. This last trumpet may be connected with the trumpet of God. There's a distinction there in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, rather than that of the trumpet of angels. Chuck Smith points to a grammatical construction that would be different if this trumpet were the trumpet of Revelation 11.5. H.A. Ironside, a preacher, says that the last trumpet was a figure of speech that came from the Roman military when they broke camp. The first trumpet meant, strike the tents and prepare to leave. 
The second trumpet meant fall into line. And the third and last trumpet meant march away. This last trumpet could be describing the Christian's marching orders at the rapture of the church. Verse 52, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Freud was wrong when he said, And finally, there is a painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. You guys, there is a remedy to this very relevant problem of death. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't stay dead in that Palestinian tomb, but he rose in power. And he's just the first one of all of those who would believe in Jesus to rise from the dead into glory. Acts chapter 2, 24 says that God raised Jesus up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Because Jesus is God, he can't stay dead. It's impossible that he should stay dead. And so when he rose from the dead, I like this, he loosed the pains of death. Are you afraid of dying? Are you a Christian here today? Who's afraid of dying? We've been learning through this chapter multiple times. Paul refers to dying as a Christian is falling asleep. And if I could say it one more time in this series, the Christian need fear falling asleep as much as he fears laying his bed, his head on his pillow at night. Are you afraid to die? Jesus has loosed the pangs of death. Revelation 20:14 says that death and Hades are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Paul quotes Isaiah, and he seems to be taunting death, mocking it now, now, as it has no power. It's kind of like an ancient form of na-na-na-na-na-na, okay? That's what's going on here. Death, you got nothing. Spurgeon says, I will fear thee, death, not, why should I? Thou lookest like a dragon, but thy sting is gone. Thy teeth are broken, O old lion, wherefore should I fear thee? I know, they're out. I know thou art no more able to destroy me, but thou art sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate wherein I shall enter and see my Savior's unveiled face forever. Expiring saints have often said that their last beds have been the best they have ever slept upon. D.L. Moody actually has it written in his, not his autobiography, his biography, Regarding the day of his death, it was Thursday, December 21st, 1899. After cutting short a Kansas City crusade and returning home in ill health, D.L. Moody told his family, I'm not discouraged. I want to live as long as I am useful. But when my work is done, I want to be up and off. The next day, Moody awakened after a restless night. In careful, measured words, he said, Earth recedes. Heaven opens before me! Exclamation point. His son, Will, concluded his father was dreaming. No, this is no dream, Will. It is beautiful. It is like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. 
God is calling me and I must go. I'm reminded of being 19 years old and being at St. Charles Medical Center in the ICU ward when my dad, 47 years old, went and crossed the threshold into eternity. For five days, my dad was in in a coma where there was no brain waves, no function in his brain. We finally made that hard call to pull the tube and take him off of life support. We began to worship the Lord and to sing a song from Isaiah chapter 6. I see the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the earth with glory, and the whole earth is filled with glory. And as we sang that song for the first time in five days, my dad opened up his eyes and looked into heaven. Incredible moment. If you are in Christ, death will be pleasant. The moment of the flesh corrupted, that's painful. That could be painful. But like Romans chapter 8 says, I know that the present trials and the weight of it isn't even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 56 says that the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. This is all very comforting to the Christian, but if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're not born again, I'm sorry, there's no comfort for you. I would wish that I could actually strike so much fear into your heart right now that you would know what hell is really like. Torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That was a a description of the dump in Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnon, hell is what it was called. And Jesus is trying to explain hell, and he's like, you go down there forever and ever and ever to that dump, to that trash heap. That's the best I can do to tell you how bad it is. It's going to be separation from God, and it's a place that was created, the Bible says, for the devil and his angels. Do you want to go there? Do you want to go there? There is a fear for you. If you're non-converted, if you're not born again, if you're unregenerate, there is a sting in death for you. There is a victory of hell for you. There's much we could say about this strength of sin being the law, but Romans chapter 7 just tells us, man, sin is so bad that it takes the law that is good and holy and pure and just, all right, And it uses it as like an aircraft carrier, as a platform to launch you into sin. That's how bad sin is. Okay? Paul says, I wouldn't have known covetousness unless I'd read the law that says don't covet. Then my sin nature took over and I was like, covet, 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 covet. All right? That's how bad we are. And Jesus came to redeem us from that. Right after Paul says that, like, man, sin is so bad, we just use what God has wanted for good, and we just go, and we just sin with it. (laughs) And then he says, man, that that I don't want to do, I'm doing, and what I want to do, I'm not doing. Anybody else been there? And then he goes, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this bondage to sin? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you catch the parallel here in our text today? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Bad news for you, sinner, apart from Jesus. 
Death has a sting. Hell has a victory. It won over you. It's winning over you. It will win over you. The good news is, all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call on his name today? Because there will be a resurrection of the dead. Jesus tells us that the resurrection of the righteous, they will be resurrected and they will go on to life. But we also read, and, and this is new to me, this is, I've, as I've been studying the word, probably in the last three years, I never really realized, first of all, that our resurrection is like this awesome bodily transformed resurrection, right? It's really cool. But then also that the wicked people will have a resurrection and the same eyes and the same mouth that they've cursed God and the same hands and feet that they've sinned against God will be raised from the dead. The sea will give up its dead. The earth will give up its dead. And everyone who's wicked will stand before God in judgment. And those who are not found in Jesus Christ will be cast into that lake of fire. It's called the second death. You know, it's been said that if you are born once, you'll only die. Or if you'll bone, excuse me, I think Lindsay's like, no, no, Rory, no. <laughs> Rewind. Okay. It's been said, first time you've heard it, it's been said that if you are born twice, you're born again in Jesus Christ, you will only die once. And maybe not even that. How cool, right? But if you're only born once out of the womb, you will die twice. You will die a fleshly death and you will die an eternal death. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved Tammy, come on up with the worship team, and we're going to come to the communion table, and we're going to take the elements of communion that are the cup, which represent Jesus' blood, his shedding of blood. Why blood? Why are Christians so consumed with blood? Because there's life in the blood, and it shows what a price must be paid to atone for sins. Jesus paid that price with his blood. His body was stripped and whipped and bruised and beaten, but not broken. And the prophet tells us it's by those whippings that we are healed. We're going to come during this last song and take these elements and just go back to your seat and feel free to stand if you want. And just consider those elements. Consider what they represent. Remember the cross. Remember the the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, the thorns in his brow, the Roman phlegorum whip across his back, 40 lashes. Remember that he did that for you, that you would be saved from your sins, that you wouldn't die twice. Remember as you hold those elements that Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have life and resurrection power in our life now. And we're going to hold on to those elements throughout this song, and it's just a very applicable song to what we've taught, been taught today. We'll hold on to those elements and just consider and ponder, and then we're going to partake together at the end of this song. Come up forward as you're ready. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.